Hey, everybody. Welcome to tonight's Late Night Happy Hour. Brian Kimonetsky and Andy Kimonetsky. Now it's the Late Night Happy Hour because it says so right above Andy's head. Um, good, good fun show tonight. We got, uh, we're going to have an interview to bring you with David Hill. He's a uh, the host of the Gamblers podcast on The Ringer. Um, so we'll get that to you in uh, you know a few minutes here. But Andy, we got to start on the big news of the day around the NBA that has an impact on literally everything, like everything, yes, including the Lakers. Um, it is going to be the imminent waving of Costas Antetokounmpo. Uh, well, you know, it was nice. I appreciate you, you being here. Uh, I feel like the Lakers at this point are uh, like a person who went out on a date. It was very expensive. The other person paid, and they have to figure out how long uh, they can do it and break up before it looks bad. Yeah. Maybe I'm overrating it after Giannis signs the Supermax with the uh, the Bucks, but I don't know if I well, am here. You, you know what it is. It, actually, I would say your your analogy is half correct. What it is, it's not that you've been dating with someone in that first date. It was expensive. You have to figure a way out. You were dating somebody, but you really wanted to date their roommate, and you were you were using whoever it was, he or she, to get to the roommate or the best friend or the whatever. And now you just realize that that roommate or best friend just got engaged in what is what it's always looked like from the outside looking in an extremely happy relationship. Yes. One that you're like, I really it makes me wonder on. why I was really holding on to this thing. Well, as, as Beck once wrote, uh, I want to get with you, only you and your sister. I think exactly. her name is <laughs> Exactly. And like, you know, the, the that by the way time. is one of the great lyrics of all time. Yes, it is. It's, it, it's wonderful, but, it, but it's <laughs> only you and your sister. I think her name is Deborah. <laughs> exactly. I mean, this, this song actually, I mean, this whole thing really was kind of, Deborah by Beck. But, you know, you really, from the outside looking in, you realize there weren't a lot of reasons for this person that you're pining over to get out of this relationship. But you tried to clear a path a little bit, try to clear some some ways in, you know, both clearing a path, like in terms of setting, like the equivalent of cap space, things like that was like, you set up a room in your house decorated just so so when this person eventually moved in with you it was ready like it was just ready for the first time they came by they see that place they recognize this is where i want to live for the next five years with a player option after four like a relationship option but it's not going to happen not going to happen and really the lakers i think knew this and again we're talking about Giannis, the 228 million dollars supermac extension with milwaukee and essentially i mean this is not surprising to anyone um I think ultimately this is what everybody figured was going to happen and that there was even a little bit of drama, I think. um, I don't know about, here's what I would say. Okay. I think more people than not, like in listening to the Brian Windhorse of the world and, and other people who are more connected to specifically the Bucks or, you know, really know the ins and outs of the league uh, a little more than, than we do. I think the overriding expectation is that Giannis would re-sign, you know, if you had to predict re-sign or leave. The idea that he would sign the extension now, that was a little bit more in question. I don't think there was a general consensus about whether it actually no, I mean, signed yeah, I, I think I th- I, I, maybe we, we can I, I I think to me it always felt like the 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 general expectation was that he would eventually sign the Supermax. 
Um, but you're right. I mean, it, it's not done until it's done. And we've seen guys. Well, I mean, we were just talking a few days ago with Darius Soriano about how it, it was up in the Correct. air. You were saying if you were him, you wouldn't do it. I did, uh, right. But that's different than what I think he, if you had asked me you know, what I would do, what I would do, because it hadn't been signed yet. If you ask me what I would do, I I, I think if I'm Giannis, I, I might not have done it. But right, for the exact reasons that a lot of people thought he might not either. But they, that he did is not surprising. But it's it, what it is is incredibly impactful. Um, yes. so we'll talk about this um, before we get to uh, the our interview with David Hill, and we'll come back and do a little bit more NBA after that interview. But it it this is one of these things you know for the Lakers had essentially punted on the 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 ability to get Giannis at least the easy way you know the the cap space way when you know when both AD and LeBron extended and like I think we would all agree Andy and you would agree that's probably the right thing to do um yeah so the Lakers I, I think either saw this coming or just decided it wasn't worth you know you you take care of your own guys before you start worrying about this sort of stuff absolutely but the ripple effect around the rest of the league in terms of other teams Dallas Miami um geez uh Toronto Toronto was considered one in, yes. in, at least in that sweepstakes all they were, of these, they were a dark horse maybe but there yeah, all of these teams that are chasing the Lakers and you know, could make this aggressive move to try to super team themselves uh, up to where the to to where the Lakers presumably are. Now the calculus on this season, on next season, on next summer, all this stuff is is completely changed. Yeah, and I mean, you and I both thought that in a lot of ways, this whole 2021 free agency sweepstakes had been overrated well before Giannis resigned, or even really before. A lot of other guys did because if you looked at it logically in terms of the real names that were involved, you know, LeBron, the the expect LeBron could have been a free agent this off this coming offseason, but it wasn't the going. expectation was he's gonna re-sign with the Lakers. There was thought about, you know, potentially Anthony Davis, but nobody really thought that he was eventually going to be leaving. You know, Kawhi and Paul George, before Paul George ended up uh, signing his extension with the Clippers, you know, there have been some intrigue about them, but they both forced their way together, you know, manipulated their way together to this team. It would have been an awful leak for both of them to abandon it. So with those guys presumably off the table, you start looking around the rest of the names, it's like, Victor Oladipo, maybe Drew Holiday. If he doesn't, if he doesn't sign an extension this year, Rudy Gobert, like Lonzo. <laughs> I mean, like really, it's it's really not. No, it's nobody's it, expecting Steph is going to leave Golden State. I mean, there's not much why, there. There. That's why these things, the all of these, all of these, you know, you know, saving your cap space for the summer of this, or we're gonna, you know, in, unless you're, you know, it, they're all dumb. It's almost always dumb. And it's it's pie in the scale, like especially when you start looking two or three seasons out at the monster free agent class of whatever, because you know three quarters of those guys are never going to reach the market by free agents. They might get there by trade. You know, you you can still trade for James Harden. You you know, you could you know Kawhi could be back out there, I suppose. But you know, generally speaking, these guys don't make it there. So with the Lakers to do what they did, I think was incredibly smart, and it it was it was kind of paid off. Today, in, in in the way that the the Giannis news came down, yeah, and I mean, 
it'll start creating some potential effects around the league. Like, for example, Toronto, who was a team that I think was considered a dark horse candidate, but a candidate nonetheless, potentially, right. for Giannis, if he ended up leaving Milwaukee. If a, if, a, if, a, if a free agent is going to go like that to, um, you know, to a city that isn't sort of the conventional choice, right. it's right. going to be that one. Right. And so now I think you might see them uh, giving OG Ananobi an extension as opposed to waiting this coming off season where it could end up actually getting more expensive. It probably be more cost effective to do it now when you don't have to think about your cap. There right. also could be teams like Dallas and Miami instead of trying to keep those sheets clean. And, you know, Miami may have seen a little bit of this writing on the wall when they gave Bam Adebayo his extension as opposed to really bringing this to the 11th hour, by the way, too. Uh, Giannis and Bam share an agent. So that may have also given him a heads up of like, at minimum, take care of my guy. You know, we'll, we'll figure this you out just, later. You can't, don't. you can't screw around like that. I mean, right. that would be like that good and that young, like Bam out of right. bio. Right. I mean, and Bam is going to be a hell of a player. He's going to be yeah. a great player, but those teams might start getting more aggressive in the trade market because they, they're not going to worry as much about the, you know, the machinations of their books this offseason because Giannis is not going to be in that picture. I, I mean, look, I, I, we talked, when we talked about this with Darius, he just brought it up. I'm not, I, I, I think there was no reason he had to do it. You know, it's, there's no injury risk here. I mean, short of obviously the most catastrophic things, but even a Kevin Durant, you know, torn Achilles or something this offseason, if he, if Giannis Somebody would give him the max number, including the bucks, or he could get whatever number he wanted and whatever contract he wanted, short of the most catastrophic injury. Look, Anthony Davis hedged against that when he signed his deal. He said, Look, I, I want the security, I want the guarantee because I have a bit of a history. Giannis doesn't really have that. Um, he's a little bit younger and you know, he's been very healthy. I get it, but you know, and I, I think he's been happy. I think this is this is a question you, you, of hit, but you hit it right. You Leverage. hit it right there. You hit yeah. it right there, though, with happiness. And I think when the royal we prognosticate a lot of this stuff and capitulate and try to read the tea leaves, I think we often overlook the value of happiness because we're thinking too much about leverage and thinking too much about different super team combos and how you're going to be judged in your legacy and count the rings and all that shit. And I think we often just overlook, is somebody actually happy? And if they're happy, there is such a thing of like, man, I'm going to be so stupid rich no matter what I do. Why have this thing hang over me? Like, it, like why have it this one thing that's going to end up distracting my team, getting, getting, if not in the way of me winning a championship this season, it's going to make the road to winning that championship X degrees less enjoyable. Why have it hanging over me? Like if I if I'm good and I know that at minimum I'm in a situation that is way better than average and I enjoy it, just put the thing to bed. Like you don't you don't part of having leverage is not knowing that you don't have to use every single option at your fingertips when you know you're in a really good place. And it's also too. It's like th this is the part that I think is is important to remember. If he wants to be traded in a year, if he decides Milwaukee's not doing it for him, if he if he feels like the Bucks just aren't, uh, you know, aren't, he's never going to win a title there. Yeah, he can get traded in a year. Like there isn't a team in the league that wouldn't 
you know, in some ways, it almost makes it easier to trade him. Certainly, you know, if he, that Absolutely. he's under contract for a long time, young guy, like you give up the farm to go get Giannis from Milwaukee if it's clear that he wanted out or if it's clear that he wants out. And so he, I think your point, Andy, is a really good one because now, you know, when you start talking about valuing happiness over leverage, how much leverage is he even losing here? None. He, he other than the threat, other than the actual threat of him leaving this offseason, which I mean, really, there's value in it. But at the same time, the Bucks have made it clear we, we're going to do everything we can. They brought in Drew Holiday. They clearly tried some shenanigans to bring in Bogdan Bogdanovich. Yeah, if you haven't read it, uh, we'll we'll put it out on the chat. If you haven't read it, the uh, you know, Brian Windhorst and Kevin Arnovitz have a good breakdown of court, kind of what happened there. Um, and it, it sounds like they, you know, it wasn't so much stupidity as it was um, an inability to keep a lid on news. That is exactly what I thought happened in the beginning. Somebody leaked something. When they shouldn't have, and they and, and they were going to get hammered, right? For tampering, right? Like in the most but, obvious way, tampering, right? But like you know, there's also going to be a part of Giannis if he's savvy that goes, all right, you know what? They need to be better at this. But it does show how much they want to make this happen and want to make me happy. So again, you oh, lose that, you lose yeah, that threat of leaving that right. leverage. But at the same time, like you would only be trying to exercise that leverage if you didn't think they were serious. And part of the reason that they were going after Bogdanovich so hard is because Giannis liked Bogdanovich. And he made it right. clear, again, this is not my reporting uh, because like, I need to point that out to you people. This is not my reporting. <laughs> this is the reporting of Kevin Arnovitz and uh, Brian Windhorst at ESPN. You know, th that this is somebody that Giannis played against internationally and all these other things, had a tremendous respect for his game. It's like, and when they consulted him, who do you think you would like to play with? He said, that guy. So they said, they went right. and go got that. And guess who else was on his list, by the way? Drew Holiday. Drew Holiday. Yeah. And so, you know, the, in the end result of it is, you know, they did okay. Um, you know, they they keep Dante DiVincenzo and, you know, they, they picked up uh, DJ Augustine. Uh, Bryn Forbes is a really good shooter who will Bobby you know, Portis. Bobby Portis uh, could be good for them. Tory Craig's an excellent uh, perimeter defender and guy who who will play a good role for them. Played a good role for Denver last year. So clearly they're listening to him. They're run by rich guys. It's a beautiful arena. And okay, I heard a I'm happy I think was, for him. I'm just not sure I'd have done it. I think it was Zach Lowe uh, framed it this way. If it wasn't Zach, it was somebody else uh, smart with a podcast that I was listening to. But I'm pretty sure it was Zach. I thought we were the only smart people with a podcast. Well, I mean, I <laughs> there's only so much vanity involved. My understanding, there are only four podcasts out there. Period. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and we are one of them. God bless us. Um, with the Bucks and their off season and Bogdanovich Gate, which again obviously blew up in ways that were at minimum embarrassing. Remove that from your memory banks, and just evaluate the Bucks off season oh, as well. But just. <laughs> Evaluate the Bucks offseason in terms of what they have and just remove that. Would you think that they had had a good offseason? Oh, yeah. That's, Absolutely. That was his point. Absolutely. Many people, many, I mean, I sound like the president, many, many people, many of the finest people, but there are legitimately a lot of people who think they're better off not having to have given up all of their depth. Sure. To to get Bogdanovich, who I think is a really good player, but 
um, you know, obviously would have cost them a great deal. It's a killer starting lineup. You had Bogdanovich and Holiday next to Giannis, and you know, you have that, you know, in Middleton, and like that is a really good starting lineup. But the depth on the team would have been compromised. Yeah, I mean, DJ Augustine's a solid player. Bryn Forbes. I mean, we just went through the whole list, and obviously, picking up Drew Holiday is a big deal um, because he's an upgrade over over uh, Bledsoe, who's a good player. Eric Bledsoe's good. Like he's another one of these. We was it yesterday? We were talking with Hyken, Sean Hyken, about like how guys because of either a playoff performance, the salary they make, or what a certain flaw that they have become thought of as much worse. Eric Bledsoe has been a borderline all-star for the last like three years in Milwaukee. He's a good player, but Holiday's better and a better fit. And he's also, he's got a better track record in the playoffs. Yeah. And that, that's a really big part of it. He's a, it's, it's a little like Bledsoe is the Milwaukee equivalent of what Lakers fans are worried about with Montrezl Harrell. Like you can't use him the way you would want to in the playoffs, but yeah. you know, for the Lakers, it's less of a big deal than it is for the Bucs because the Lakers have shown that they don't, need those things uh to win in the playoffs so it works just fine um lots of there's still plenty of stuff to to kind of take apart with this uh we also want to get into a uh movie star a genuine movie star who discovered one of the more dare i say controversial fast food restaurants controversial but in its own weird way quintessential american and we will get into that it is um it, but it's it, i i think this fast food restaurant is genuinely divisive it is i i it is it is popular and divisive it, it was popular it's all of those groundbreaking things. and divisive that you know what they call they need that's a tease it is a tease. um but uh we want to we, we we had an opportunity this afternoon as you guys know we've been uh, trying to expand a little bit out in the in what we're able to do, who we talk to, uh, bring in a lot of different voices, some of whom are on the East Coast and can't stay up until two in the morning every night. Uh, but we had a chance to talk earlier today with David Hill. He's the host of the Gamblers podcast on The Ringer. It is a great and super oh bingeable series, uh, short, like, you know, limited run podcast series um, over on The Ringer. It's individual stories of gamblers who, you know, in different sport games, I guess, sports, whatever, um, different games and kind of dives really deep into the mentality uh, and the stories and everybody's name, like Slippery Pete and, and it, like, it, you know, the character, Jones. It's, it's unbelievable. The characters are fantastic. Um, the episodes that have come out so far involve a professional blackjack player, professional poker player, professional uh, horse race better. Uh, professional pool hustler, like, um, and the uh, the one coming out tomorrow. It's the final in the series. is about a professional sports better, and just it's really, really great stuff. And Dave Hill is himself a professional gambler who grew up around it. He knows this world really well. It's a great, fun series. Yeah, he's also the author of The Vapors, A Southern Family. I gotta read. I have to literally read this. I can, there's no way I can memorize it. The Vapors, A Southern Family, The New York Mob, and The Rise and Fall of Hot Springs, America's Forgotten Capital of Vice. Um, it is hard to put together a book title that makes me want to read something more than that. Indeed. Uh, yeah, I, I, I will read that book. Um, so that came out in July. So pick that up. And again, this is uh, David Hill. Uh, I started off by asking him, he's a gambler himself, as Andy just mentioned, what his origin story is uh, for gambling. Because all of these guys have origin stories. So I want to know what his is. Well, I grew up in a, um, 
a group in a family of gamblers, I suppose you could say, and um, a group in a in a gambling town. I grew up in a place called Hot Springs, Arkansas. Um, and uh, Hot Springs was a racetrack town, and once upon a time, it was a big. It was kind of Las Vegas before there was Las Vegas, right? So a lot of people that lived in Hot Springs settled in this little town in the middle of Arkansas because they came there to work in casinos and to be a part of the gambling industry that was once there. So I grew up in a town that was filled with gamblers and and also was a part of the sort of carny community as well. So um, so I grew up around a lot of these kinds. The types of characters that you meet in this show are kind of similar to folks that I think I grew up around and met throughout my entire life. But I was exposed to gambling at a pretty young age. I mean, I learned to read the Daily Racing Forum when I was nine years old. So uh, um, it's just something I've always been around. Did you ever toy with the idea of becoming a carny or, or did gambling just appeal to you more? <laughs> no, I never I never toyed with the idea of becoming a carny, but I, did, I was fascinated. I mean, I was fascinated by their life and uh, by the lives of some of these folks. And um, and uh, and I've always been I've always been a little I've always had a bit of a soft spot in my heart for um, con artists and, 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 and con <laughs> men and like, you know, and hucksters and uh, and, and those kinds of hustlers as well. So, um, and I still love going to the carnival even today, even here in New York. Um, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. I, I was going to say, uh, what, what do you think? Because there, there are a lot of perceptions about gambling as a profession. Um, what, what do you think is most misunderstood about it? <laughs> I think, I think everything is misunderstood about it. Honestly, I think that like popular culture kind of, um, uh, gamblers in popular culture, are like either addicts or they are savants. You know what I mean? They're like Rain Man or something. <laughs> and uh, or and they're all like these spec in popular culture. They're all like spectacular multimillionaires, right? They're all like they're like these completely wealthy. Like uh, so, I don't think that we have a good sense of what the lives of real professional gamblers are like um, in America. Those of us who you know, most civilians, I think, don't really understand that. Like this is a job, right? And uh, I think the other thing that's misunderstood is that gambling isn't just something that happens in casinos, right? Casino gambling, I think, is what most of us are most familiar with. But honestly, anybody that, you know, anybody that applies a trade where the way they make money on it is by putting up their own money against someone else, then they're gambling, right? I think one of the things I was hoping to do with this show pre-COVID was to really have some episodes that showed other sides of professional gambling, right? Like I wanted to profile uh, people that made their living gambling at basketball or uh at, or street racing or you know like there's there's so many different ways that people can earn a living through gambling right and it's just it's just if, if if you're good at something and there's not an opportunity to become a professional that thing then the way you become a professional that thing is by betting other people that you're better <laughs> than them at it one of the things that uh i noticed in the profiles that of uh, the players that you chose the, there's a commonality of they're not necessarily misfits or socially awkward or you know people that i think have a difficult time being around other people but they they all sort of struggle to figure out who they are or like what you know what their place in the world is like a, a lot a few of them drop out of college the ones that even try college they're all philosophy majors which mm -hmm. in a lot of ways is this uh you know seeking of a higher purpose higher meaning you, you yourself uh studied philosophy as well what is it that you think attracts gam uh, attracts these type of people to gambling? Well, I mean, I don't know what the chicken and the egg is here, right? I do think that like, if you are, if you're somebody who the one thing in the, your life that you're really good at 
is a game that you know that you that if if the thing that you can do really well, though this sort of society doesn't present a career path or a way to like make your living at it, then that means that the door that's open, the path that's available to you, means that you have to kind of walk this path where you're going to have to gamble, right? And I think that's um, difficult, right? It's difficult because we aren't brought up real thinking that like this is a viable way that people can live their lives. If anything, we're taught that like gambling is wrong, right? That there's something wrong with people that gamble, that it's um, degenerate behavior or that it's, uh, you know, that it's somehow a vice and sinful. So people, you know, there's a taboo associated with it as well, that a stigma that people have to overcome in addition to trying to figure out how they can make money at it. Um, I don't know, this thing about philosophy majors kind of came up during this show. And <laughs> that's something I definitely want to think more about and explore because it is true that like, you know, there are, one of the things I think I'm learning as I make the show is that there are these like, even though these people come from different walks of life, different backgrounds, and they're all playing different games, there are these commonalities, you know, that are very fascinating that I that I hope if I get a chance to keep doing this show that I can explore and learn more about what it is that binds all these various gamblers together. That was that actually, I mean, you like it's almost like you're reading off my question list because you know, you talk about Michael Saul, who's the the money gin player that you profile, Emily Gullickson who handicaps and wagers on horses. Do you have you have you seen any like you know the, one thing I saw is that these people are grinders like they're they they have an ability to you know certainly to see numbers and see probabilities think outside the box or whatever but there's a, a a grinding factor to this that I think comes through in every story um, but in, even without exploring it as fully as you as you like to have what other things like that have you seen that bind these people together? Yeah, I mean I think the idea of grinding kind of comes along with folks who. Folks who are professional gamblers understand that, like, uh, the the way you make a living is uh, to understand your bankroll, to understand how much you can really wager on any particular thing, you know, and managing your money. um, I think that's a skill that professional gamblers develop, and they learn, you know, because there's variance, there's swings. I mean, you lose sometimes, right? So you have to be prepared to take expected losses, Um, and so part of that comes when you develop this sense of that, I think then you learn how to grind, right? You learn how to like, you know, stay in action. I mean, one of the things that Gina is always talking about is how she, you know, when she's playing, she's not um, thinking about how much money she actual dollars she won or lost. She's thinking about how much EV she actually made. Right. So even though she could have a losing session, if, if what she was playing was positive expected value for her, then she's still making money, right? In this other sense, right? That like the longer she does it, the more hours she puts in, the more hands she plays or whatever, she's going to have an expected earn. So even when she's losing, she's earning. And I think that's kind of a mindset that you really only professionals are able to fully grasp, you know, because people like us, when we walk away from the table loser, we're loser, you know what I mean? Like we don't get to come home and pat ourselves on the back that I put in this many hours of this much EV today, you know? <laughs> yeah, and this is this is Gina Fiore, the uh, the uh, blackjack player that you, pro, you profile at the beginning of, of, of the series. Uh, and, I, and I have questions about her later. <laughs> um, well, you, it's, it's a good entry, like, because, you know, the, the data and numbers and analytics, like, you know, we, we in conventional sports, you know, basketball, you know, basketball is where Andy and I spend most of our time. And it's like just, you know, flooded with analytics like mm-hmm. how has data and and analytics and and all of the, you know this information that's available now influenced the world of professional gambling uh, you know is it legitimize it what's been lost what's been gained it, it seems like a really big part of it technology definitely made it harder to be 
to, to, to win money gambling, right? And it's made it harder because even the playing field quite a bit. I mean, one of the things I think that's fascinating to me about take like sports betting, for example, you know, you don't have to go very far back in time to find people who made tons and tons of money betting on sports by having very simple angles, right? Um, there were there were guys who built whole careers and built fortunes on the fact that they just would like read the local newspaper. You know, they would get there, they would have somebody send them a local newspaper from some town so they could get a report on an injury in a college game that nobody else had. Mm-hmm. So because information came at such a premium, not even, I mean, seriously, not even what, 50 years ago, 40 years ago, it was still hard to get your hands on information. If you had that, it was so valuable. Today, everybody has so much information. And so it's weird. It's like a double-edged sword. Like having more information means that people can develop more models and they can get better at this, but it also everybody gets better at it. So um, it makes it, you know, it, it, there's a lot more competition to, uh, to, um, to, to figure out, find those, find those models or find those angles and, and, and um, make the money. I, in the last episode that we aired last week, that was about poker. You see the same mm-hmm. thing happening in poker where technology has completely changed that game in a very short span of time. I mean, the guy I profiled in that episode was really like, you know, he retired at like 30, you know what I mean? Like, and not retired because he was so rich, but because like the game had changed un- out from under him in less than a decade, the game that he learned to play suddenly wasn't any, wasn't the same game that people were playing anymore. And that was totally because of computers and computing power. And uh, I found that really fascinating how, you know, how, quickly that game sort of changed because computers got more powerful in a short period of time. Uh, Gina Fiore, the blackjack player that you um, profile, I think is really interesting on a lot of levels, but one of them is just, it gets into the line of, or what is the line with cheating or what would be considered cheating because she's a card, she's a card counter and Mm -hmm. that's not officially considered cheating, although it is highly frowned upon by the casinos and get you blackballed. And she also has an ability to see dealers' whole cards, which, depending on how you do it, can be cheating, cannot be cheating. Some people use gadgets and things like mm-hmm. that. Other people are just good at being able to see when a, when a dealer's weak when it comes to you know protecting that whole card. And then you know she also, because of what she does, she'll work with teams. She'll be wearing costumes. There will be these elaborate schemes. So you're obviously trying to hide something, like. From what is considered, I guess, illegal, mm-hmm. and how do gamblers feel about this? Like, is there a line between gamblers with what's accepted? Like, is it a question of you know screwing the house over versus screwing fellow gamblers over? Because what she's doing in some ways doesn't feel entirely above board. You know <laughs> what I mean? Well, it's certainly, I mean, it's its certainly not helped by the fact that she is forced to wear disguises and yeah. use fake names and change. You don't generally do that if, if it's kosher. Right. But I think that's a, that's unfortunate, right? Because I don't think that what she's doing <laughs> isn't above board. But the reason she's hiding her identity is because casinos don't want to give her any action because they know she's going to beat them. And so she has to like, you know, and this is not just Gina. I mean, lots of professional gamblers have to deal with this. It, you know, I've been yeah. covering gamblers for a while. Even before the podcast, when I would write about gamblers, you know, for the ringer or wherever else, I would find that people wouldn't want to give us give me their names because, you know, if 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 if, if your outs at the places that you bet know that you are sharp, then they're not going to let you bet there anymore because they don't want to lose to you. So 
you know, while on the surface to a civilian, it may look like you're you're changing your identity because you're hiding from law enforcement. It's not that they're hiding from the casinos or the bookmakers yeah. or the people that they want to bet with. They don't want them to know that, hey, I'm that guy that's really good, you know, or I'm that woman that beats your ass at this game every week. But, you but know? she's and also, though, the, but she's also the like woman. Everybody in these shows is named like Krusty Pete and like, you know, <laughs> and Slippery Dave. And, like, and, and she's the, also the too. Right. She's, she's, oh, the names are phenomenal. <laughs> they're fantastic. But it, like, she's also, though, the woman that works with a crew. Mm -hmm. You know, where they will they'll be signaling each other and, you know, working in tandem, which, right. again, I, I don't I mean, I don't know if that's literally legal or not, but it's definitely, you know, it's a little Ocean's Eleven -y right, in terms of what they're doing. So I, right. I can I can understand where the casinos wouldn't want people doing something like that. Right. But the casino, again, they just don't want people to win. That's it. Well, that's true. I mean, if this, if you had a whole team and you wore all wore disguises and used code names and you were losing, they'd let you lose till, until you dropped it. They, they just don't want you to win. Well, then you're and jackasses. I mean, that's the difference. If what you were doing is against the law, they would call the police and you would go to jail, right? Or you'd go, that doesn't happen. It's just the casinos, they bar players. And, you know, they 86 them, they put them in these books, in the Griffin book, or they put them on a list and they say, you can't play here anymore. That's what I think these players are trying to avoid. They don't, because once you get 86, then your stream of income is cut off. Right? Yeah. You can no longer make that money playing there. So, you know, it's so to your question about what's illegal and what's not, I mean, yeah, it's illegal to use a device that assists you in any way, but it's not illegal to use the information that's there in front of you, right? If the if sure. the dealer exposes their whole whole card, you know, in Nevada anyway, the law says that, you know, that's that's the but casino's responsibility. You should you should utilize that right. if, if a dealer's exposing it. Absolutely. Right. And also, once the house accepts your bet, they've accepted your bet. Right. This is a big thing that goes on, especially in Nevada, in New Jersey. And but, you know, a, a, a lot of times like there's this gamblers call it getting free rolled. Right. Where the casino will accept your bets when they think you're losing. But then when you win, then they want the money back um, and they're going to argue that you you know broke their rules or whatever. After the fact, once they realize you won, the biggest example, of this was the Phil Ivey case where he was playing Baccarat around the world. And um, he was asking the dealers to turn the cards around so that the um, they would certain cards be oriented a certain way. And they did it. They obliged him because he was betting like $5,000 a hand or something. You know, he's betting insane amounts of money. And the casinos thought they were going to get rich. So they obliged him and they did this ridiculous thing he asked him to do, which was a lot, giving him a huge advantage. And then after the fact, when he took them for a lot of money and they realized how he did it, they, wanted, they took him to court to get the money back. This is what we call getting free rolled, right? Like. Yeah. You lose, you lose the money. If you win, you still lose the money. And so, you know, at least in Nevada, what that, for people don't know, what did turning the cards do for him? Well, because certain the the certain cards, playing cards, B playing cards in particular, have the the pattern go extends all the way to the edge of the card, and it would be diff. The pattern would look different on different edges. Right. And so he could see with his eye which cards were the cards. You know, he could see which cards were which based on how what edge was on which mm -hmm. side. Um, and they gave him a big advantage in the game and, uh, and the, the casino obliged him. And so my feeling on this is that if the casino said, okay, and they took the bet, then they don't get to later on cry and say, Hey, that's not fair. You know, I mean, imagine if you, you know, if you, if you establish a bet and you establish what this, <laughs> the rules are going to be, you know, I think of the old story about Amarillo Slim Preston, you know, playing the, uh, tennis game with, with frying pans or whatever, or like, you know, playing pool with a broomstick, like or Titanic Thompson, you know, the, the old sort of tall tales about Titanic Thompson, like 
you know, throwing a walnut over a building. Like if you agree to the bet, you agree to the bet. If you find out later that like, you know, that you got hustled or whatever, you don't get to get your money back because you agreed to all the terms. No one lied to you about what they were doing. Nobody, you know, nobody told you, you know, nobody, nobody tricked the, the Borgata into taking that, taking that bet. You know, they, they agreed to the bet, so they have to pay up. But, you know, casino companies don't think that way. They think they should always get to win every time. And, you know, bookmakers, it's the same thing. Oh. So gamblers are up against that, too. They're up against the fact that, like, the places where they can get, get money down don't want to lose and don't want to pay it out. They believe that their, biz their whole business model is built on the idea that they don't lose, that they always win. The, the, the reason this is sort of an interesting topic because the whole reason that this show that we've made is interesting to people. The whole notion of a professional gambler is wild to us because we are we have all been conditioned to believe that you lose at gambling. You're supposed to lose at gambling. Gambling is something where you lose and the house always wins. Like that's the way it's, in, you know, that's sort of ingrained in us. But that's not always the case. I mean, there are people who make their living playing slot machines in Las Vegas. You know, gambling on slot machines. You can win at these games. The problem is that when you figure out how to win, the casino figures out how to not let you come right. in hit anymore. Right. But we just sort of all have been conditioned to believe that, like, you're not supposed to win. So if you're winning, if you're winning, you're doing something wrong. And you know, I'm hope hopefully, if we keep doing this show, I can dispel some of that, this idea that like you can't win, you can't beat the house, you can't win at gambling. That you actually can. You can that, that whatever game has been invented, there's somebody out there running the computer models analyzing the rules, trying to figure out how you can win at that game or how you can at least get an edge so that you can win over the long run. Um, I wanted to ask about the Scott Frost episode, the professional uh, billiards, as you explained the origin of pool, which I had no idea that's that why it was called. Um, but what, what I, I thought was really interesting about the, the pool hustling world is it's really the only one that was described as fairly dangerous uh -huh. In a lot of ways, like, you know, Scott, without giving away too much that happens in the episodes, Scott Frost gets pistol whipped. He lives in constant fear of getting robbed. There, there are pimps. There are members of oh, the Mexican cartel, Mexican cartel around. Like, what is it specifically about that world that attracts that type of element to the atmosphere? <laughs> well, one thing that I want to point out about the Scott episode is that all the pimps and the drug dealers and stuff that he gambled with were completely honorable and actually like walked him to his car and gave him all of the money and loved losing to him. You know, there's this thing about within the world of gamblers, you know, most there's a lot of honor among gamblers, right? I mean, there kind of has to be people, you know, they, their word is their, you know, their, the fact that they pay off when they, yeah. lose is what enables them to get a bet the next time they want to bet right so in order to continue to be a gambler you have to be able to be to be able to say that you pay up yeah and so there's a lot of honor among gamblers who, who gamble gigantic sums of money for nothing more than a handshake there's no contracts there's no going to court right but a lot of the trouble scott runs into comes from people who are not gamblers but are sort of these like people that live on the live around the margins of that world who prey on people who they know have a lot of cash and um, and so, you know, he runs into a lot of trouble. The other thing about Scott's episode is that he's telling stories that took place like, you know, in the 90s. You know, it, 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 I called the episode. I, I think I said that he was like um, the last great American fool. Yeah. Right. And, I, and what's interesting to me about Scott is that those were the kind of the last days of the road gamblers. Right. Because, mm -hmm. again, technology has so much changed the way that people you know, uh, even the world of pool has been changed by technology. By the time Scott got off the road, I think what he found was that now everybody knew who he was. I mean, he'd be in one town 
you know, playing some guy. And there'd be pictures and videos of that game showing up on forums yeah. on the internet or being emailed around. So when he'd hit the next town, everybody already knew who he was. Well, that right there killed a big part of his action, killed a big part of what what his you know life was about, which was flying under that radar. That, that was something know. I was wondering about because like we've all seen the color of money, we've all seen the hustler, like rounders, like anybody who had a big stack in his pocket, I would just assume is good. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, it's hard for me. Are there a lot of people who really just throw around that type of money with no business doing it? Yeah, the thing here's the thing about pool. The thing about pool is that the reason it's such a great gambling game, and this is also true about golf, the reason that pool is such a great gambling game is because you can negotiate a spot. And the thing, one of the things I learned about pool, hanging around pool halls, is that anybody, right, you and me could play, or we could, you or me can play the two best players in the world, but we can negotiate a spot where we could beat them. So the real gambling in pool happens in the negotiation, not over the table. If you can get yourself the right handicap, you can win. And so that's why you find that there's so much willingness to gamble, even among players that are completely different skill levels. You see this on the golf course too, right? Where you can negotiate a handicap so that any two golfers can have a <laughs> have a, an even game if you give if you spot somebody enough. So that's what's really going on. I mean, that's why there's so much there's an ability to gamble so much at pool. And what Scott was able to do was negotiate spots where, you know, he'd negotiate a spot where the other player felt like they were getting enough, but he knew they weren't, right? He just had to, so he just had to have an accurate enough sense of how much better he was than the other player. This is just like with sports betting and understanding that the, that the line, that the, the, the point spread that the bookmaker has set for this game is off by just a half a point. So I'm, and, and because I know that in the bookmaker does, I'm going to win. Scott knows that because you, I, you gave me one ball too many, I'm going to beat you, but you're going to feel like you can beat me because you think I gave you enough weight. That's what it's all about, right? It's not about like, you know, nobody knows I'm good, but all the same. I mean, Scott was hit, you know, he was living on the road in the last days of the idea of people living sure. on the road. And he was, and that life on the road was beset by, you know, all kinds of pool hall, you know, pool room creatures that, you know, preyed upon guys with lots of money in their pocket. So he definitely had to watch his watches back all the time. I think that it's a little bit less like that today, not to say that that stuff's all completely gone, but I think there's a reason why Scott's episode, you see more of that than the others because the stories he's telling took place so long ago. Gin used to be this very popular game. Yeah. And then the poker boom swallowed up gin. And we've seen, or at least we're told that poker's popularity is waning compared to, you know, where it was at the, the beginning of like the two thousands and that, is there a game that you're anticipating having a pretty big boom on the horizon? Oh man, that's such a good question. Um, I think that right now chess is experiencing a big boom and I don't know how that's going to translate into the gambling world. Although people certainly do like to gamble on chess, but during the pandemic, we've seen chess really blow up in a way that we have probably not seen in America since the 1970s. Um, and so, you know, it's possible that we may see um, people, putting up money and betting on, on, on chess uh, and seeing a little bit of a ch chess becoming a little bit of a fad. That's not that crazy to think about. I mean, backgammon certainly had its moment. And I talk about that in the Michael Saul episode too, where Michael came to New York city wanting to play big money gin and everybody in New York city was playing backgammon and every club was just filled with backgammon players because in the seventies, it was such a fad to play backgammon. Everybody was playing backgammon and people were playing it for big money. Even though that's also a game where like, you know, very hard to beat somebody who knows their num knows the math behind it and is playing perfectly. Even if you get, you know, you can get lucky dice, but again, you know, you have to be really skilled at that. So 
but that's a really good, great question. And in terms of card games, you know, I don't really know. I mean, I know that like we saw for a second that people were playing a lot of open face Chinese poker. Um, that's some people have been playing on the online and on apps and stuff. Uh, and there's been a lot of excitement in, within the poker community around that game. Um, whether that, you know, the, the real question is, can a game take off with like the public at large, not just among people who are just, you know, games addicts and, and, and game nerds. And that's a game that maybe probably has a higher learning curve and won't catch on as much with the broader public, the way that Texas Hold'em yeah, did when they put it know, on TV. You know you're shitty at chess. Like you can yeah, pretend you're yeah. a player, you know yeah. when you're bad at chess. But that's exactly right. That's exactly right. I mean, the fact that poker presented people with enough luck that like everybody could convince themselves that they were so great at it, that's what really fueled the boom and kept made it such a big and it's harder to do that in chess. You can't really lie to yourself in chess as much. But but it is experiencing a little bit of a moment right now, so we'll see. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. It's a great question. Uh, yeah, the, the, the book that, that, that Dave wrote is uh, The Vapors, A Southern Family, The New York Mob, and the Rise and Fall of Hot Springs, America's Forgotten Capital of Vice. Um, that came out in July. Uh, and the podcast with The Ringer is Gamblers. It is a ton of fun. It's a it's great great. Um, you can get through it pretty quickly. And the, the final episode is uh, this week. Um, yep. So Comes out uh, check it out. And uh, David, thanks so much for coming on, man. We really appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me on. This is really fun. All right. So that was uh, David Hill, the uh, host of Gamblers on uh, The Ringer. Really fun. I actually thought one of the most interesting parts of that to me was when he pointed out like, these people are what they are in part because like there is no profession, like their professional Avenue to be that like if professional backgammon was like a thing that everybody embraced, nobody would think it's weird that somebody, you know, spent their life gambling on backgammon. Yeah. I mean, we be a job. I mean, we, we're seeing that there's less of a taboo now, for example, on sports betting and, you know, casino, you know, you've got all these different now major leagues that are really openly in bed with all these different betting services and casinos now pop up all over this country. You can bet legally different games, you know, in multiple, you know, probably most states in this country. It'll be interesting to see if in say like 50, 60 years, if the whole perception of being a gambler just changes because for so long that stuff was taboo and maybe even underground and it's, it's the wrong, so it's you, the wrong you like you said you were forced yeah, into a lot the of wrong kind of gambling. No you know the kind of gambling people you know if you're a stock guy and you do that's 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 acceptable that's acceptable gambling like you know but the the kind where you do poker for a living where you might actually have better insight yeah. and a greater advantage over you know the proverbial house than you do in in, in stock picking, because um, so much of that now is done by analytics, computers, and, I mean, and data, and, and is data driven. Yeah, uh, you know, when most people gain and lose in their you know exchange traded funds, it's the computer that's making the trade, not a person. Well, I mean, we also we just get arbitrary with this stuff all the time in terms of what we decide, what what we decide merits. Same. Uh, judgment and, and morality and things like that. I mean, you know, alcohol was legal until it wasn't legal. Then it became legal again. You know, we're arbitrary in the way we make alcohol okay, but certain drugs 
very harmful. Certain drugs considered recreational. Certain drugs are considered recreational depending on the wealth class that you're a part of. Now, all of a sudden, marijuana is you know legal, and you've got you know a guy like John Boehner who spent years you know as a member of government working very hard to keep it illegal. He now is in the marijuana business. You know, he he is actually involved with it. So, I mean, all all of these lines shift constantly. Yeah. And they're often very arbitrary in terms of what we decide is okay and what isn't. I think we're seeing that. So, with I, okay. So, uh, we that, pre, uh, appreciate David Hill's time. We'll uh, we're trying to get that podcast out just by itself yeah. too. We sort of you know made that with the uh, Bernardo Ruiz interview we did last week. That thirty for thirty, by the way, debuted tonight, I believe, as yes. well. So check that one out as well. We'll try to get that podcast. The Infinite Race. The Infinite Race on ESPN and ESPN Deportes. All right. So I this is this was from uh, ESPN. And they have the predictions for the East and the West. Not surprisingly, the Lakers. I mean, this is a pretty big swing from last uh, from last year. The Lakers, ninety three percent of the first place in the West votes. Who will win the West? Lakers get ninety, not more than nine of ten of the available calculated scores from the uh, voters at ESPN. And in the East, it's Milwaukee with sixty one percent. So, like the two overwhelming consensus teams. Both kind of re-signed their their stars, have stability, have all this stuff now going forward, and aren't drastically, you know, in the case of the Bucks, really aren't drastically changed from last year. It's just, I mean, would you agree Milwaukee's basically just swapping out more or less in terms of really important pieces? Holiday for Bledsoe. I'm missing. Uh, I, I think they've got a little more shooting. They, they, I think they probably have more wing depth or reliable wing depth than they had in the in the past. But, but like yeah, they're, they're not sort of the fundamental pieces. Well, it's it's not obviously as big a shift to say when the Lakers added Anthony Davis last season. Right. But you know, I I think they've gotten better. And then when you look at the Lakers and the Bucks, you're talking about the three best players in the league. I think right now the consensus. You can debate the order, but I think if you polled most of these same people who made these predictions, who are the best three players in the league, you're going to get some combo of LeBron, AD, and Giannis. So it's not shocking that the teams that they are a part of, especially when two of them happen to be on one of those teams, would get the most predictions to come out of their conferences. Right, and that's obviously why. That's why you know, obviously, any team in the league will still, and you know, to go back to the point that 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 we were talking about before, this is. Probably the thing that I missed um, in talking about it with Darius last week is the leverage question. It when you, you're right, it doesn't really go away, and so you know Giannis still has it. He's still got the ability to get traded and force a trade if he wants to. But it also, to me, Andy, it gets to the thing like now, what happens with Harden? Miami, you know, uh, all these teams like Giannis is off the market. Do these teams push harder for somebody like Harden because he is one of the only transcendent talents in the NBA now that everybody knows can be had? The other one, I guess, could be Kawhi if things go really bad with the Clippers this year. But you got to wait for that to be done. You don't have to wait on Harden. So, d- d- I, I d- how do you think Giannis? Because all this in the end still kind of impacts the Lakers and teams chasing the Lakers. How? how how much do you think this changes what other teams are going to do around Harden? I I still don't think if I'm Philly, I I I panic and start throwing in multiple first round picks and Ben Simmons. I don't know if I'm Miami if I 
if I, you know, do hero and, and everything else, I'd consider it probably more Miami than Philly, but I mean, I guess, because I guess ben some, Simmons is a better player right now than Tyler. I, I, I guess to some degree, the question is these teams that you're talking about, how much did they consider themselves, if at all, part of that Giannis question to begin with? Like if you're Philly, for example, I don't think this affects you one way or the other. Because you may have anticipated that if you that if Milwaukee didn't end up with Giannis, like keeping him long term, there was a good chance he'd end up in Miami. So right. one way or another, if you're if you're a team like Philly in the East, you're going to end up having to go through Giannis, or maybe he ends up going to Toronto instead. But the odds favored that he would stay in the East over the West, just because there were only so many teams in the West that I think were legitimately in that conversation. You had Dallas being talked about. You know, I guess the Warriors a little bit, but there, there weren't really many teams outside of Dallas that were really getting talked about a lot. So I don't know if this would affect Philly one way or the other. I think it just comes down to, do you want Harden there? Do you think Harden will work? You know, What asking price are you willing to meet? And how much do you want to see what it looks like with this new group, with your new coach, with Simmons and Embiid, before you even make that type of decision? Yeah, I... It gets to why Giannis, why Anthony Davis, why there's so like there's a hierarchy of this. Like, not every transcendent player is created equal. Not every super elite guy is the same because some of them are easier to play with than others, mm -hmm. and some of them are much easier to. You know, Giannis has his flaws, but he's an easier guy to figure out. What do you? How do you put him with another superstar? I think it's easier to figure it out with Giannis. It's easier to figure out with AD than it is with Harden, because you know Harden's had these had this parade of superstars go through there, and none of them seem to kind of work. And you know he's got this very specific style that's always been centered around him. And at some point, you got to wonder: well, maybe it's just that James Harden is really effing hard to play with. Well, I think also maybe he's going to play like that at least. I it's it's two factors. I think one, his style of play likely isn't going to be for everybody but there's also two like and America. <laughs> yeah, lately um but you know this by the way hard to play tonight tubby you look you know what he looked like he looked like he's having a little baby oh i see what <laughs> you, you did, did there, there. um uh, little baby's a rapper i learned that yeah, last week. And a male rapper as a male <laughs> rapper i had no, i did I not know, know that dude Similar to Jack Harlow with Lou Williams. I had no idea that guy existed either. Also a male rapper, correct? You know what, though? I felt better because I, I actually put this out on Twitter when, when the Lou Williams uh, Lemon Peppergate story broke with Jack Harlow at the center. I actually put out on Twitter, I don't have any clue who Jack Harlow is. Like, I've never even heard of him. Is this me getting old or sh is it? Am I that square? Am I that old that I have no idea who he is? And the overwhelming response was no. Like he's only been popular for about three or four months. It's okay that you don't know who he is. Like Clinton Yates, our buddy at ESPN, actually tested, texted me and said, it's absolutely fine that you have no clue who he is. Little baby, another guy. No clue. I don't know. That guy was walking baby. the earth. This is, you know, this is juice. Little baby. How many people do you think follow Little Baby on Twitter? I'm going to say maybe no apostrophe. It's just Lil. I'm going to say 2.6 mil. 3.8. Higher. 
5.6. A little lower. 4.3 million people follow Lil Baby on Twitter. You know how many people Lil Baby follows? Two. Zero. Nice. Not That's like your damn person. That's like years ago. Ask the question, what percentage of those follows are bots? I don't know, but if it's like 40%, that still means like I've got a lot. Three million people follow this guy on Twitter. So it makes me the point isn't that the point is maybe I should have heard of him. Okay. Like I remember uh in the early 90s, uh th and this is back when CDs and albums came out with liner notes, and like the liner notes were a big deal. And if you right. were a music geek like I was, you'd pour through all this stuff. Rap albums in particular would have just these laundry list of thank yous. Like their thank you section was like six or seven pages of the of the liner notes and i remember thinking it was the most badass thing ever cypress hill on their debut album their thank yous was zero they did not <laughs> thank a single person it's the equivalent of following nobody on, nobody twitter. on twitter i just like i'm the i i have so little like understanding and knowledge and you know general street cred um and 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 on any of these things that like my great fear is interviewing any of these guys because I don't know what to call them. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so, like, you know, um, you know, so is it Lil? Do I call you like when I ask you a question? So Lil Baby, um, uh, just Baby, just Lil? Just, look, it's you ask. I think that's how most people when they interview Ice Cube know. Just call him Cube. Cube. Like as opposed to calling him Ice. Cube, call is, him Cube. I, Cube, I know. I grew up with Cube. But right, but there's well, still I know though, what to call Cube. That's fine, but there was a you were yeah, when still Cube broke me doing it, but I know right, what to call. But, but here's the difference though. This is what you're forgetting. When Cube broke out, you know, in the late 80s, when people would interview him who were older than us, we were in high school, in your case, junior high when that happened, those same people had no idea what to call Ice Cube yeah. or no idea how to, you know, do I call him easy? You know the guy, you know, you know the, the guy I fear the most. Who? The weekend. <laughs> <laughs> well, you only a couple reasons. First, I, I it's been a little while now um, since I learned that the weekend is not was a person, not a group. <laughs> that was amazing. I went a long time. I mean, it's been yeah, a little while now. I know, but it's been a little while. Uh, there was there. It was longer than I should have before I I knew that th there was not a group of people called the weekend, which by the way makes much more sense. You have to admit, like that's not an unfair assumption. But I just don't know what to call them. I mean, it, 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 you know, the weekend I can't interview. Can't can't I, the the weekend offers to be on the late night happy hour. You're gonna have to turn him down. <laughs> just. I, mean, I realize he's very popular, probably as we say in the business, draw a big number. But I, I do, I do, Mister the. Um, but anyway, uh, when the New York Times talks about <laughs> the weekend, what do they call him? Uh, <laughs> that's an interesting question, Mister the Weekend. That's a very interesting question. But I, for, um, back to the original point that we were talking about with Harden. I don't think, and, and this is again just a five thousand foot view because you know they're not a team that I cover or around all the time. Harden from a distance seems like he's not just hard to play with on the court. He seems like he is hard to be a teammate with off the court as well. And I think that's yeah, that's the combination that makes it extremely 
difficult in terms of your team around the league figuring out how badly do you want to bring him in? I and it's all he's 30 at this point, 31. He's old. Yeah, he's or, old. At some point, you know, I don't think he's I don't think he's a bad guy, but it's like at some point, just at what point is it baked in? Like, do you are you unable to sort of adjust? Like, can James Harden play with Kevin Durant and Kyrie? He's obviously talented enough, but I mean, good God, you want to talk about trying? I mean, it's gonna be hard enough for Kyrie and, and Katie to kind of figure it out and make that work. I think, but that's another thing where I think the leader hardened to that, like the leadership dynamic. Forget, forget figuring out how to make that work on the court. No, I, 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 no, I, 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 I think you're right, but I just mean just the basketball of that is complex. I think it's very complex. Uh, I mean, figuring out the offense, figuring out the defense with that as a core is not going to be easy either. I mean, there, there's James Harden is a complicated guy to plug in on a lot of reasons. I mean, like most stars require a certain amount of, you know, a certain amount of massaging. If you're going to add them to your team or you're bringing people with them, you know, stars are used to having things a certain way. I mean, we, we covered Kobe for years. Kobe was by his own admission, not for everybody. And Kobe was not always easy to play with at all. He would have been the first person to tell you, but in terms of what you do with Kobe, it wasn't necessarily that complicated. In the meantime, you always knew what he was committed towards. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the more you played with him, the more you got used to it. And then especially he became more content once he had better teammates. Harden just seems really difficult on just about every facet to have a team built around. He just does. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I, I, I don't – I mean, I'd still – Every team out there that has an opportunity has to take the opportunity to at least talk about it. You you can't just be like James Harden. I'm not you know, I'm not doing that. You have to consider it. It's just it's one of those. He's one of those guys, and it's and it's either a terrible mistake. Uh, you know, we're in a league where talent is the most. This this is the thing that Daryl Morey was constantly trying to do around Harden. Like, pick that. Okay, fine. I'll get that guy. I'll get that guy. Talent is what matters. I mean, the Lakers are going to prove that. I think most people believe this year, no question. But he's he's one of those guys that kind of is the you know a potential exception to that. Just because as talented as he is, you have to think about it. And he's really fat right now, which probably doesn't help. And you know, didn't hasn't covered himself in glory in his efforts to try to get out of Houston. Uh, by the way, <laughs> no, he has not. Uh, 26.2 million followers for the weekend on Instagram, uh, and even 13.7 million on Twitter, which is a lot considering the kids don't use Twitter anymore. Um, and we still can't have him on the show. Mm-hmm. Don't know what you call him. No, still can't have him on because you Sorry. can't figure out who he is. By the way. The weekend, the weekend's section, the subplot involving the weekend in Uncut Gems is fantastic. It really That's is. Just, it's awesome. It's, I just picture me like setting up the screen for like nine people to be on. <laughs> Only one guy shows up. I'm like, where's everyone else? Why God, didn't you bring the rest of the band? You're like confusing the weekend with the roots. <laughs> like, you, like you, or like Earth, Wind, and Fire or like Parliament Funkadelic. You're just picturing this Earth, Wind, massive- and Fire. 
I can have on the show. That's true. That's true. You that would be an no, awesome. Oh, you would, would that be a good be awesome show. episode. Be a great show. Be a great show. All right. <laughs> Give me this uh Gal Gadot story. Uh basically Gal Gadot, uh Wonder Woman, um, and also from the Fast and the Furious series. She was on with Jimmy Fallon promoting uh the Wonder Woman sequel, which I believe came out today, or it's coming out this week yeah. for sure. And she they they did a taste testing thing, her and Jimmy Fallon, where Jimmy Fallon tasted a few Israeli items, I believe, or, or Mediterranean, if nothing else. And she tasted a few very, very American things. One of them was eggnog. Oh, coming out Christmas. Okay, thank you. So it's coming up. Uh, I was seeing reviews coming out, so yeah, I thought by the way, it was this week. Not good. Yeah, yeah, they're not. But uh, we'll see. People are desperate to see anything right now. People are desperate to be happy right now. But uh, she tried eggnog. The theater at least. <laughs> if you're going to physically go into a theater, damn well be better for a good movie. I, I ain't going for Wonder Woman, I'll tell you that much. If I wasn't, if I wasn't willing to risk it for Tenet, I'm not doing it for the Wonder Woman <laughs> sequel. If really bad, then you know you, you'll be the only one there. It'll be safer. But uh, that's, well, that's the problem, though, is I don't think I'll be the only one there. Um, but she had eggnog, which she did not like at all and seemed just confused by what the hell it even was. That's correct. Then a ho-ho, which... She just thought it was super sweet, but I think she was. Eh. Then she had a Taco Bell taco. It looked like a crispy taco, huh? and she loved it. <laughs> like absolutely loved it. Her face lit up. And just to double check uh, to make sure that this wasn't an act, I even Googled like Taco Bell's ownership company, and then tried to figure out if they have any connections to NBC just to make sure that this wasn't some type of basically promo um, product placement. And to the best of my knowledge, I couldn't find it. So it seems that Gal Gadot, big time movie star and more exotic, she's been all over the place, loves Taco Bell. All right. Loves it. Mind blown. This makes me, the Gal Gadot and I, as I've always thought, have a great deal in common. Yes. Um, we both dislike eggnog. Mm -hmm. and we both like Taco Bell. And I look, I... I I understand this is Los Angeles. Taco Bell is not the place to go to get a great taco. Like I, it's not I it, that shit tastes good. It does. It, it, it first of all it tastes like high school, which is nice. But it I, there is not a fast food restaurant that makes their food look more appealing on TV and make me want it more than Taco Bell. And you know what? When you get there and you actually have it, it's pretty damn good. As Quinn Better points out, Taco Bell isn't Mexican food. It's Taco Bell. That's exactly right. If you think of it that way, it's delicious. I don't, I don't eat it a lot, but it's good, and Gal Gadot is exactly right. It is a very polarizing restaurant, though. Well, here's the thing, though. I mean, I, I, Gal Gadot, I don't know how much – I don't know how much Mexican food she's had over the course of her life. I also don't know how much, like, American cuisine she's had that wasn't just basically craft services. Like, I, I really don't know. I don't know the answer to this. I don't know where she uh, where she lives when she's not filming something. You know, if she's stateside or if she's Israel or wherever. But like you touched on this before, and ultimately for me, the reason that I don't eat Taco Bell beyond just health reasons that I try to avoid a lot of fast food. Period. When you're living in a city like this, where you have so much not just Mexican food but cheap Mexican food, yeah, Taco Bell has just turned into something that to me doesn't taste like what it's supposed to, but it doesn't taste good enough 
for me to look past that. Unless, by the way, they want to sponsor this show, in which case I was wrong. Right, no, I just, and then the problem with me. All hail Taco Bell, best Mexican food. But, in the city. Right, but I, oh, absolutely. I mean, it's in, it's incredibly authentic. What are you I guys mean, doing down there? Getting it from the the guy you know who rolls out his flat top, that bullshit flat top. You know, right. that we're lined up for it. Get it. Get get to the belt, man. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that guy, first gener first generation American, straight from Jalisco, no idea what no, he's talking. Doesn't about. know what he's talking about. No, no, he's he's the one that's wrong. He's not serving think, anything that's supreme. <laughs> I, I think I think that's actually what it is for me. Is just because like other other fast food, like fast food burgers, I still love those. Uh huh. And you know if. If there's like fast food, I guess the equivalent of like a fast food Italian or something like that, that would be fine with me. You know, I will eat reasonably fast foodie-ish Chinese food or whatever. But like living in this city, it made it so Taco Bell just right. it's not that even it's that I think it tastes bad. It's it doesn't make sense to me. But the, your point about the price point is exactly right because like a, like a better burger than a fast food burger you're kind of doubling the price. Like, you know, exactly. a lot of places, not everywhere, but like, you know, unless you're near, there, there are places where you can get a, a great $6, like, you know, kind of diner style burger or whatever. But like, you know, if you want to jump up to like a higher quality, it's 12, 13, 14 bucks as opposed to that's four. the thing. Tacos ain't like that. Nope. Anyway, but I, I think Gal Gadot's right. If she gets any flack for this, I will defend her. Look, not she liked it. She's very fetching. <laughs> she's she's too fetching to disagree. She is, as Michael Thompson would say, a handsome woman. <laughs> I miss Michael. I miss Michael a lot. One day, one day we'll all be able to be in the same room again. Um, all right. So uh tomorrow we're going back to football. Yes, back we are football with uh Jordan Rodriguez, one of uh, I think at this point we can call Jordan Rodriguez a friend of the late night happy hour. She is a friend of the show, and she is a fan favorite. She's a Laker. Uh, she's a late night happy hour favorite among um, among our viewers. They love them some Jordan Rodriguez. Brian Curtis from the Ringer, who kind of does everything over there. Um, really excited to have him on on Thursday. We'll go back to basketball a little bit on Friday with Claire Loon, and then next week wall to wall basketball uh, ahead of the holidays. Michael Pina, who's now with Sports Illustrated, was with, he wrote some great stuff throughout the bubble with for GQ. Uh, we'll be on doing a live show after the 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 season opener on Tuesday, and then Rod Carney from Sports Illustrated as well on Wednesday. So a lot of NBA coming up tomorrow yep. night. NBA with uh, Jordan Rodriguez. NFL. I'm sorry, yeah, NFL with Jordan Rodriguez again. Cam Brothers uh, on Twitter, uh, Kamenetsky Brothers at gmail.com. Let us know thoughts on these interviews. You know the the all the you know the pre done stuff. You know the the pre tape stuff. We we definitely want to hear from you guys. Subscribe to the podcast as well. Uh, and the Lando Lakers podcast if you're not yeah, already. All of those things. And we'll see everybody tomorrow. Thanks. Donkey Needle on. <laughs>